Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I am Greta Johnson, and I'm here to tell you humanity is at the forefront of so many insane scientific discoveries that seem like they could just be science fiction. Designer babies, computers in your clothes, hyper-specific targeted ads delivered straight to your brain. But hey, did you know scientists right now are trying to figure out how to bring back animals that haven't existed on this planet for thousands of years? That is what we are talking about today on Nerdette. It's called de-extinction. And it turns out that animals that lived hundreds of thousands of years ago could help save the future of the planet. As I'm sure you can imagine, the idea of de-extinction goes really quickly from potentially awesome discovery to maybe supervillain dark magic. So, here to talk to us about all the hows and the whys and the upsides and the potential pitfalls is Britt Ray. Britt is the author of a book called Rise of the Necrofauna, The Science, Ethics, and Risks of De-Extinction. Britt, welcome to Nerdette. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, so let's start with the super basic question, what actually is de-extinction? Good place to start. Yeah, de-extinction <laughs> is a scientific movement that's aiming to recreate close versions of extinct species. So these iconic extinct characters you might think of, the woolly mammoth, the passenger pigeon, the thylacine, and a variety of others are being worked on in labs in various parts of the world. Um, not to actually resurrect them per se, but to create close versions of those extinct majestic creatures using tools at our disposal, such as gene editing, cloning, and back. So I feel like now is the time to just get this out of the way and say that a lot of people are probably going to think of Jurassic Park when you say this, because I think that's sort of like the most somewhat relevant, like cultural touchstone we have to conceive of what you're talking about. Yes, 99% of conversations of de-extinction begin with Jurassic Park. (laughs) (laughs) But that's not really what we're talking about, right? When you talk about these different ways of making this happen, it's not a matter of, like, finding bugs and amber and making dinosaurs. No. I mean, dinosaurs are actually out of the question altogether because they've been gone for about 66 million years, and that's far too long to be able to work with their DNA. And that is because DNA degrades over time, um, radiation and all sorts of different kind of exposure to the elements and uh, other natural factors means that it gets crumbled into tiny little illegible bits and we can't reconstruct useful um, segments of the genome to be able to work with. And that's the first ingredient for de-extinction. You need to have available 
available DNA of the extinct species in order to do the next steps. So um, dinosaurs are not on the wish list, but a variety of more recently extinct species are. And scientists have been able to reconstruct um, segments of legible bits of the genome of a 700,000-year-old horse. That's the oldest species that they've um, done that process with, meaning that when we look at species that have gone extinct far more recently than that, then they might be in the running. Of course, 700,000 years is only a fraction of 66 million years, which explains why dinosaurs are just not possible. That is insane. Okay, so I'm definitely interested in how we could make this happen, but I think we really need to start with why. Well, the justification that most people get behind is that we are trying to recreate close versions of extinct species that have important traits that kept ecosystems functioning in a particular manner that are now missing since those species disappeared. So, And these are called keystone species, right? Keystone species and the act that they could have is one of ecological restoration. So if there's some kind of particular role that they played as a grazer or a predator that has disappeared and as a result that ecosystem is perceived to have somehow lost some uh, value in a, in a biodiverse way than bringing back a species that could recreate that role in some way because the functional traits are brought back, then maybe we could restore some of those holes that have been reaped in nature, usually by humans that have pushed those species over the brink into extinction. So yeah, I think the idea of the ecological benefits of de-extinction is really interesting. Can you use an example with something like the woolly mammoth on what that would actually look like? Right. So... As you're well aware, we face a devastating climate crisis. (laughs) What do you mean, Brit? Things are warming. (laughs) And importantly, permafrost is thawing. That's a really bad name that we gave to it. Permafrost, we thought it was permanently frozen. Not the case. I grew up in Alaska. I'm well aware of permafrost. Oh, you're well aware. (laughs) Okay. Well, in places where woolly mammoths used to roam, let's take Siberia, there are these vast swaths of land with all this permafrost that contains millennia's worth of dead animals that have lived and been, you know, they've died there, fallen into the ground, and all the vegetation, importantly, that they fed on is made up of carbon. So all of this carbon material has been locked into the permafrost that we've been quite happy about. Mm -hmm. But as things are warming and the permafrost is thawing, we see and can measure, and it's happening at a very alarming rate, uh, these carbon materials are being released into the atmosphere. And as the microbes that are everywhere on the surface um, of the permafrost kind of chew away at this material, they convert it into either carbon dioxide or methane, which are, of course, two of the greenhouse gases that got us into this warming predicament. Mm -hmm. And so... People really want to find some innovative and ingenious ways to keep the permafrost frozen in places where it might be possible. And so the idea here is that we need big, marauding, heavy animals that can trample around in the snow and perforate that thick, insulating blanket layer with these, these borrowing holes. That would then create channels through which frigid air from the atmosphere could cycle and hit the topsoil of the permafrost and somehow keep things a little bit cooler. And so this sounds like a bit of a stretch in terms of recreating woolly mammoths just to perform that ecosystem service when there are so many other available megafauna that we could try to just trample the ground with. Mm -hmm. However... um, well, A, there, there are some 
bits of data to show that heavy trampling can reduce the temperature by about 15 degrees Celsius in areas where uh, there's a lot of animal activity. You know, they're looking to turn over snow and find a blade of grass to eat in the winter months. And that can that can have this effect um, that de-extinction mammoth enthusiasts are hoping for. But the thing with mammoths particularly is that because they're proboscideans, it's the family that elephants are part of, we presume they're aggressive like elephants are. And they're big and they're strong and they can knock over dark plants and uh, and trees. And, you know, dark things absorb the sun's heat and keep things warmer. And uh, that their heavy dung piles would create nutrients that would fertilize the grasses. <laughs> They're really thinking of the woolly mammoths as some kind of ecosystem engineer that could help with the permafrost issue and um, also have these kind of knock-on services that could get rid of, of dark plants and help increase the vegetation that could be light and reflective of the sun's energy. Man, I just really love the phrase de-extinction mammoth enthusiast. That is amazing. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're pretty enthusiastic. So what do you think about the argument? Like, I'm thinking I looked up extinct species. Is it the quagga or the quagga? How do you pronounce that? Quagga. Quagga. But, you know, then they've got South African accents. So you've got to add on uh. to that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so this yeah. is a super cool zebra horse creature. What do you think about the argument that, like, it's just really awesome to look at, so we should bring it back because it's cool? So the quagga, um, very closely related to zebras, they look like zebras. Uh, they just have a kind of toffee-colored backside that lacks the stripes, and you can imagine that would be beautiful to look at. Um, similarly, a woolly mammoth would be extremely beautiful to look at and awe-inspiring, and what wouldn't we give to kind of look one in the eye now? But this uh, superficial human desire mm-hmm. to recreate species for our own enjoyment is... Uh, a, a sin, really. <laughs> I don't think that we should be um, considering that as a justification to go through all of the um, trying processes to to do that. Um, if there is some kind of justified ecological reason that we can really get behind, then perhaps we should consider it, but not without determining, A, is there really viable ecosystem space to put them back into? Um, will the uh, food sources be available for them that they need? Would they be susceptible to pathogens that could just make them go extinct again? Are there human communities that might have a not-in-my-backyard attitude towards them, you know, this kind of NIMBY phrase we hear about, Uh and want to take out their guns, um, uh, shoot them and shovel them and then shut up about them? I mean, there's all sorts of different uh, threats. Why would we go through the process if they could potentially be up for re-extinction? So we need to reconsider, you know, at what cost do we really want to to do this? And it, uh, is our explanation of wanting to just see them because they're beautiful enough? Uh-huh. To be clear, we are still a ways away from de-extinction actually becoming a reality. So for now, at least shelve those dreams of having a pet saber-toothed tiger. Ideally, that would actually never happen. You have seen how terribly awry that went in the Flintstones. But that is why it's actually so important now to discuss the ethics and concerns of all this. Because de-extinction does present some pretty insane implications. Coming up after the break, Britt helps us unpack them. Because a lot of these animals require a heavy degree of genetic manipulation, they will not be seen as a product of nature mm-hmm. under the law. Mm-hmm. And you can patent things in a country like America that are not considered to be a product of nature. Wow. I made a monkey zebra. 
And I would like to make money off of it now. Patent, please. You're listening to Nerdette. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Okay, so we've been talking a lot about why we might want to bring back extinct creatures. But how is another story? And Britt says there are three main ways. One, the first being cloning. Mm -hmm. Think about Dolly the sheep from back in the day. If you have the DNA of an extinct animal, you can insert it into the egg cells of a closely related animal, which has been done actually with a mountain goat in the Pyrenees. Her name was Celia. The second is called backbreeding. It's kind of similar to how we've bred dogs from wolves over a whole bunch of different generations. Backbreeding is that same process, but backwards. So in the case of a big, broad-shouldered cow called the aurochs, you know what the extinct cow looked like that you want to recreate. And you understand that all of today's living cattle are actually its descendants. So you look to the available cattle we have around the world, and you pick the ones that most resemble the extinct aurochs, hoping that you can eventually cobble together a mix that combines all of these different traits. And the third is genetic engineering. Think CRISPR. Theoretically, we could stick some woolly mammoth DNA into the cells of some Asian elephants. Eventually, the idea is to import all of these woolly mammoth-specific genetic changes that you're interested in into the master cell, which would be an egg cell or an embryo that you can actually then develop into the fetus that would be growing inside of a surrogate mother or possibly even an artificial womb. Okay, so we talked about a lot of the potentially very exciting implications of de-extinction. But I think we also owe it to ourselves and humanity to talk about the potential downsides, too. And one one that comes to my mind that actually reminds me a lot of some of the thoughts we had around CRISPR, too, is the idea that this is such amazing, crazy technology, right? Like, it's almost difficult to fathom all of the different things that we could do with this knowledge and ability. And I wonder what else is dangerous about exploring a topic like this, do you think? I think there's tons of things. I mean, we haven't yet talked about the legal implications, but (laughs) how do you, how do you um, plan for the proper protection of these species? How do you list them? Are they going to be protected by the Endangered Species Act, for example? Should they uh, be created in enough number that you would want to list them? Do they get listed as a new species or as some kind of sub 
population that buds off of the extinct species that was once there. Or like woolly um, mammoth with an asterisk or something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, how do you permit the mammoth? Um, <laughs> what if in one country our de-extincted species is is seen as an endangered species and, and thus is protected, but in another country it's not seen that way and it's considered an invasive species. Mm-hmm. And since these species are supposed to be reintroduced into natural environments and animals don't carry passports, they just wander. Um, You could imagine uh, that jurisdictionally speaking, in one place it would need to be exterminated because it's invasive. In another place it would need to be protected. So these kinds of um, legal uh, questions and conversations, people have dipped a toe in them, but they're certainly not a priority given all the other issues that lawmakers need to deal with and the fact that these animals aren't here yet. But um, how do we how do we best responsibly plan for this should de-extinction succeed? So we have to de-extinct them and give them passports is what you're saying. It, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> Um, The other thing is that because a lot of these animals require a heavy degree of genetic manipulation, they will not be seen as a product of nature Mm -hmm. under the law. Mm -hmm. And you can patent things in a country like America that are not considered to be a product of nature. Wow. So then what happens? You know, Uh who holds the patent and what are their intentions? I mean, I I genuinely believe that the folks working on this from a scientific angle have the best intentions of wanting to use these animals for ecosystem services. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, people with deep pockets can license patents and then do other things with them. So what kind of unecological aspirations are there out there? We already know that people would like to create tourism uh, opportunities from rewilding areas with de-extincted creatures that could really draw a crowd that would that would pay to come revisit this kind of um, ancient, uh, revitalized nature. Jurassic uh, also, Park, if you will. <laughs> exactly. Um, also, what about foodies? You know, what could be more gourmet than food that's marketed as being brought back to life from the dead? I know that sounds crazy to go to all the lengths of recreating species and then just eating them, but we know that people eat extremely endangered species because it's a status symbol for them. And so it's a it's a status symbol. There's money wrapped up in it. And, you know, we need to ask questions about ways in which this could be perversely used. For sure. Well, and what about the argument, too, that, like, it went extinct. Maybe we should just let it be extinct. Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> that's that's important to think about. And I would argue in many cases necessary. Extinction offers lessons, right? Yeah. I mean, the whole process of mourning and grieving is not to be taken lightly. We learn things from going through these processes. Um, There's an incredible philosopher of extinction named Thomas Van Doren who lays out very eloquently why the extinction abuses the kind of faith we can have with the dead and what we can learn from extinction itself as a natural act or a human-caused act on this planet. Because as we grieve um, and as we mourn, you know, we we learn that we are caught up in, in binds that are important with other types of life on this planet. And it, and it hurts, of course, to not have them be there, but we can uh, relearn the world in their absence and, and do the deep reflective work that's required of us right now to try and change our ways that are causing these incredible vast amounts of extinctions. And if we just 
don't mourn and we just organize to kind of push forth as fast as possible and get them back in some way, then we miss the opportunity to to look ourselves in the mirror and do the deep political and cultural work that's required to actually not just slap a Band-Aid on these problems, but try and address the root issue that's created them in the first place. Well, and that makes me think, too, that like maybe there are certain things that we're just not supposed to be able to do, you know, and maybe bringing things back from the dead is one of those things. Maybe. I mean, I'm not such a purist that I would think that there's some things we just shouldn't do. Sure. Um, But uh, there's certainly things that are unwise to do. I mean, we have to scrutinize at every step of the way. Is this the right thing we should be doing with these powers just because we can? Does that mean that we should? I mean, I think the the big issue here is can we trust humans with extremely powerful tools to do the right thing? Are we mature (laughs) enough as a culture, as a society to to handle these properly? Yeah, I think that's what I mean. It's like, yeah, maybe we should just draw the line. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, Britt Ray, thank you so much for taking the time. This was fascinating. Greta, thank you for having me. It was so fun. Over the course of preparing for this interview with Britt, it actually occurred to me that I've done a couple of stories not exactly about de-extinction, but about how important different animals are to different ecosystems, like the bison in the prairie. And as I was talking to Britt, I was reminded of this news story that I did several years ago that had to do with something that happened at the Lincoln Park Zoo. Some scientists there had this super old ferret sperm and they were able to use it to impregnate a couple of new ferrets and make new ferret babies. It was one of the most delightful stories that I've ever gotten to report on, especially as a general assignment reporter. Like, you just never know what you're going to get. The day you get ferret sperm is a pretty great day. But what was really great about that story is that the name of the ferret was Scarface. So I'm just going to leave you with that. The show is produced by myself, Greta Johnson, along with Justin Bull. Our co-creator is Trisha Bobita, and our executive producer is Brendan Banizak. Nerdette is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on NPR One, or listen in the WBEZ app. It's also very helpful if you leave us some stars on Apple Podcasts. Many thanks to Kalisa, Mother of Dragons, for the review. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We are at Podcast. We have a newsletter. It's pretty awesome. You can sign up for that if you go to wbez.org slash nerdsletter. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Sometimes you get criminal justice reform. Sometimes you get ferret sperm. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.